Exodus 20, 1 through 17. Okay. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Let's pray. God, would you just prepare our hearts for what you want to say to us today? Through Ryan, God, through your word, we just want to hear from you, Lord. We pray that your spirit would be present, that your spirit would be speaking, that we would hear audibly, clearly, what you want to say to us, Lord, and your truth. Um, mostly just that you're God. And there should be no other gods before you, Lord. Please just help us to believe and understand this today, Lord. So help us, God, be with us. Give us ears to hear. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in a series here where we've been going through uh, the Ten Commandments. We're actually starting today. We've done two weeks of setup, just talking about the, the role of the law and the gospel in the life of the believer. Uh, many of you um, have come from different backgrounds, and the law has played a different role in your life. But as it stands, it is still uh, one of, the, 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 like one of the, the pinnacle scriptures that we think about when we, when we think about God's Word. And it's been used in different ways and fashions. And we've just said that Jesus, because he said that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, that the law has a role in the Christian's life, but it's not the role that many of us think that it has. It's not for righteousness, as Galatians uh, 3 and 4 teach us. So what is it? So last week we, we looked at it and we said that it's a, it's a curb. Humanity's not as bad as it could be because of God's law. That it's a mirror that we're able to look into God's law and to see ourselves as we truly are, and for us to be wrecked, but also to be loved. I was talking with a friend this morning. He said, you know, the cross is the only explanation for, a, for an unconditionally loving God who calls us to fill the requirements of the law. The cross is how we fill that. And lastly, it's a guide for our lives. Not a guide for our, for our righteousness, because that's by faith alone, but a guide for how we ought to live in Christ. And so what we're going to do for the next 10 weeks is myself and a couple other communicators will be delivering uh, a sermon on each of the commandments. So today we're, we're digging into uh, the first commandment, which Erica just read for us. And you know, as we get into that, I, I was reading 
I was reading a book by A.W. Tozier this week about worship, and, and there was a line in the book that just kind of struck me. It just kind of stopped me in my tracks. I don't know if you ever have, you ever read something, hear something, that just kind of, you can't really hear anything else other than that. Well, this, this quote was that, and, and here's what Tozier said. He said, and it's real simple, so don't hold that against me. I, I found it profound, maybe you will. Uh, if you worship on Sunday, what happens on Monday? Let me say it again. If you worship on Sunday, which is what we're here to do, what happens on Monday? And, and what Tozier was going after was this. Is, is a lot of times we look at worship as an event, as a day, but worship is a lifestyle for us. So what happens when we go into the office on Monday, or we go into the classroom on Monday, or we go into the meeting on Monday? Or we, or we have the encounter with a person on Monday. The invitation for us is always and only to worship. Because we are worshipers in our identity. We always have been and we always will be. That's how God made us. But few of us, including me, few of us are often aware of what we are worshiping on Mondays. On Sunday, it's pretty clear, right? We're here to worship the Lord. We've set this day aside for worship to Him. It's the Lord's Day. It's the Sabbath. But on Monday, it gets a little, it gets a, it gets a little uh, conflated for us. And today what I want to do is I want, I want to look at the demand of the law and what that means, but then also uh, just, just a few ways for us to be able to, to uh, identify, dethrone, and replace the idols that we often put in place before our God. So let's look quickly at the demands of the law uh, from the first commandment. You know, it, it, the book of Exodus, is, which is where the, the Ten Commandments are, they're in two places, the book of Exodus and the book of Deuteronomy. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. The book of Exodus is a book, if I could put one word on it, it would be deliverance. It's all about deliverance. God delivering His people. And, and we see this straight out of the gate in Exodus chapter 2. Right? Moses is kind of the, the central character other than God of Exodus. And Moses is the mediator that God uses to deliver His people. But, but Moses doesn't start believing and living that way. In Exodus 2, Moses is raised up in the home of a Pharaoh because of the oppression of, um, of the Pharaoh who was killing all of the Israelite children out of his insecurity that were held there uh, uh, as, as slaves. And Moses, his family, just in faith, Puts him down the river. The Pharaoh's daughter picks him up. And he, he's raised in the home of the Pharaoh, basically. The Pharaoh's daughter raises him. And so there's still something that's deep-seated inside of Moses, though, that, that wants justice for his people, for the Israelites, for the Hebrews, for God's people. And so one day, he sees some Egyptians mistreating uh, his, his Hebrew kinsmen, his Israelite kinsmen. And, and he takes deliverance into his own hand. And what's he do? He murders the Egyptian. And then he kind of goes back home, and the next day what happens is there's this confrontation, and he, he, he deals with it as a man in authority, and then the guy says something that really freaks him out. He says, what are you going to do, kill me like you did that Egyptian yesterday? And then he freaks out, and he, he runs the Midian. He runs away from God. He runs away from his purposes. But guess what happens even in Midian? God finds him. God finds him, and he says, listen, just because of your sin doesn't mean I'm done with you, but we've got work to do in your heart. And so God uses him, and he calls him back into Egypt to deliver God's people. 
And after they're delivered in Exodus 20, we get the Ten Commandments, which are the character and nature of our God delivered to His people. So let me just reread the first two verses of this command here, Exodus 22 and 3, just so you have it fresh in your mind. Because what comes before the first commandment is crucial to the understanding of all of the commandments. And it's this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's the preface to the Ten Commandments. Out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. God wanted to make it so clear that God was the one doing the delivering, not people. People, we all end up like Moses trying to deliver ourselves, and we spend our lives trying to do that. Maybe you're in here today, and you're, you're trying to deliver yourself out of something, and you just find yourself powerless, and defeated, and depressed, and full of despair because you can't seem to get it right yourself. If that's you, I've got the best news in the world for you today. Because you're in a good place because only God can do what you're trying to do. So it's, it's God's grace that you feel powerless to deliver yourselves from your sin. You know, as, as you look at this as well, the, the, there's this call, there's this call to have no other gods before me. Now, when, you, when we think about uh, the, the radical nature of what God's saying here, I mean, most religions in the world are polytheistic, meaning many gods, they worship many gods. But Christianity, Christianity is monotheistic. I'll never forget realizing this, uh, just afresh. Uh, a few years ago, we had someone over uh, from our neighborhood for dinner, and um, she, she had been raised in, in kind of a, a confused conglomeration of a bunch of religions and kind of had this hodgepodge thing that she had kind of crafted for herself from, you know, from a Catholic upbringing, a, a, a Muslim cousin, um, and some Buddhist friends. It kind of crafted this kind of polytheistic amorphous of a religion. And, um, and, and she asked me, uh, over dinner, first time we had met them, she said, so here's what I believe, what do you believe? And I'm like, well, not, not that I'm ashamed of what I believe, but I'm like, it's, kind of, it's pretty different, you know? Uh, and so I just did what you are all always welcome to do, throw God under the bus. I just, said, I just quoted John, uh, I, just, I just quoted from the book of John, and said that Jesus said that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to me except through the Father. Except through the, to the Father, except through me, and and she just kind of heard it and said, oh, "Okay, that's cool, that's cool." So it was like crisis averted. She didn't storm out of her house. It was great. But but what we see, church, is that polytheism, worshiping many gods, is insufficient because the work of deliverance still relies on you. Think about it. Some some of the the most popular polytheistic faith systems are. Uh, or the Muslim faith, the way of Islam. Each religion has its own way. The way of Islam, what is it? It is God and the five pillars. Or about, what about the way of Buddhism? God and the eightfold path to enlightenment. Or what about the way of Hinduism? God to the moksha of Hinduism. The end of the rebirth process of reincarnation. Each religion is different. It's polytheistic meaning that there's a worship of many gods and the, the pathway to deliverance does not depend upon God alone. And so God wants to make this very clear from the outset as He gives us the law. Yahweh is different. First and foremost, He's a God that we know the name of, that we know personally, that He knows us personally. And He wants us to know that He alone does the delivering. And He does it through His Son, Jesus. He does it through Him and Him alone. 
And He's pleased to do that for us. But, but as you and I struggle through this life to follow God, we inevitably find ourselves in these places where we look for other ways of deliverance. Where we try to protect ourselves where we try to make our own way of deliverance when we get in a pinch instead of trusting the one true God. And what we see that the Scripture calls that is idolatry. Uh, Tim Keller uh, wrote this book called Counterfeit Gods. I would recommend everyone in the room to read it. If you're a reader, get it. If you're not a reader, get it anyway. Because um, <laughs> it's really good. And he just, ta- he just breaks this idea down that we all struggle with idolatry. Now, you might not have an Asherah pole in your living room that you burn incense to, okay? I don't know anybody that does. You know, maybe, maybe, you, maybe you come from a faith system where you, that does happen. But we all struggle with idolatry, so we're all in the same boat today. And here's how he defines what an idol is. He defines it a little more broadly, and I would say deeply, than the way we typically think about it. Here's what he says. What is an idol? It's anything that's more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. That's what an idol is. And we're going to spend the rest of our time on unpacking that and how to get set free from that. Because really what I want you to know is that no matter where you're at today and what you've walked in, You don't have to leave in bondage today. That's the good news of the Gospel. That it's not about working yourself up to some type of a moral status where you've got your proverbial stuff together enough that God would love you and deliver you and free you and set your heart uh, to have peace in your life. That It's only through faith alone that we get this. And I want to show you that through Jesus. So here's the big idea of where we're going today. The only way to find satisfaction is through identifying dethroning, and replacing the idols of our hearts. So let's dig into this process of identifying idols. If you've got a Bible, I want want to invite you to open up to Psalm 135. Psalm 135 as we look at this. And here's what the Scriptures say to us through Psalm 135. 15-18. I'll just read this for you quickly here. The Scriptures say this, The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. This is opposed to the the worship of the one true God. He says, they have mouths but do not speak. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. So here's what he's saying before I read the, the kicker, which is the next verse. Here's what he's saying is that they're not alive. That's what an idol proves to be. It is not alive. It is insufficient to deliver you from anything. It makes empty promises that if you bow down and you worship me, you make your life about me, in other words, then I'll deliver you. I'll give you satisfaction. I'll give you happiness. I'll give you all of the things that your heart desires. He says, but no, 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 no. They're dead. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. Mouths, but they don't speak. And then he says this about idolatry that I don't want you to forget. He says this, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So what this passage means is this, is that the the Holy Spirit basically reveals our idols to us as followers of God. And, And here's how we see what our idols are. Because 
you know, I, you could think, oh, you know, it's my job, or it's my wife, or it's my kids, and you can kind of scratch the surface of what those might be, but under every single one of those relationships that you prioritize and seems to be, can be your God to you at times, there is something deeper that you are longing for. There is something deeper that your heart is after. And what Psalm 135 teaches us is that what we worship, we become like. And so what we begin to do is we can kind of trace backwards and see what our idols are from our behavior. So imagine this, your behaviors are like a, 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 a trail of breadcrumbs leading back to the burning idol of your heart. Whatever your behaviors are following and chasing and desiring, you follow those back and you see what your idol is. And to illustrate this, I'd like to share you about the idolatry of one of the elders uh, of our church. Y'all would love to hear that, wouldn't you? Be good. So I'll tell you mine. I'm one of the elders, so I'll tell you. Uh, personally, so for me, um, I have a lot of idols. I've got a closet full. Um, you could come and look at any time. Um, but but from, from a young age, I've, I've had this, I think, this idol of control in my life. And, and I could... I could look back and see glimpses of where I started picking, picking up on these self-protective measures of self-deliverance is what they are. Uh, you know, I, I could look back and I could see um, where, where, where it kind of began. As, as I was you know, younger, I, I kind of had to grow up a little quicker than some kids my age as an only child to a single mother. Um, and, and life was kind of broken, and I could see pieces of that, but I also see great pieces of God's grace in my life of bringing godly men and women into my life to show me the way because none of us were believers. Ultimately leading me to this place where I found Jesus and received Him, and my life began to change, albeit slower than I desired for it to, but it began to change. But I can look back at these, this, this kind of trail of breadcrumbs throughout my life uh, that the idol of control, that all lead back to that, that, that burning desire to be in control of my life because I'm so afraid of entrusting my heart to another. I can, I can, I can, think, I can think about times where Megan and I in our marriage have not been on the same page. And, and instead of thinking, you know, you know, we should probably just talk about that. It'll all work out. God's grace will cover us. I immediately jump to like worst case scenario. Like this is all falling apart. I don't know if our marriage is going to last this is crazy, you know. I jump to that point and then Megan and I talk and everything works out. We're reconciled. Things are fine. But I jump there because that's, that's how my heart works. I can think about uh, a time in my life that we affectionately call the snowplow days where, uh, where Megan had uh, just quit working uh, for, for uh, outside the home anyway because stay-at-home moms do a lot of work. Don't you ever not say that, by the way. But uh, she stopped working. We had our first child, and I was a, a, a youth pastor that, that made a little above minimum wage, and we uh, were trying to make it work, and I had, this, I had this bitterness in my heart toward my wife. I, like, I wanted the appearance and the benefits of my wife staying home, but I didn't like not want the money. You know what I mean? It was like this. And so I'd, I'd, I'd like stab her with these little jabs of like, oh, that, 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 I thought the house would be clean. You've been home all day. I thought dinner would be ready. And, and you, can, you can guess how well that went, right? She's gracious and still married to me and loves me. Um, but, but then it, it kind of hit a peak whenever one afternoon I came home with a snowplow on the front of my truck. And we lived in Indiana, so there was actually snow there, not Georgia. So that would make no sense except for days like Snowmageddon. You'd rake it in, right? But anyway... 
the snowplow days for me were the kind of the pinnacle of not trusting God, especially with our finances. And this idol of control came out because I just went and I bought a snowplow because I thought, you know, I can work during the day for the church and I can snowplow at night. We'll make it. We can do it. And so, guys, I did that for about a week. And after, like, not seeing my family and then, like, not being able to function during the day, I sold the snowplow because what I realized was that I loved my family and I loved what God was doing more and I wanted to provide God an opportunity to show me that He's actually in control and sovereign. Now, we all have different ways of tracing our behaviors back to our idols. And I'd invite you to explore that yourself. I'll share with you one other example uh, that's from history. A fellow by the name of Andrew Carnegie. Maybe you've heard of him before. He's quite the big deal uh, a long time ago uh, in America. And um, he, he, he made his fortune in the steel business. And he had... Um, a sense of enlightenment about him. I don't, I, don't, I don't look and see evidence that he was a Christian. He was a part of a church, but he had this kind of weirdly concocted belief system. But he did have some in-tuneness about how he saw his idolatry. And so his biographer quotes, quotes him in, in, uh, by the name of um, Joseph Fraser Wall, quotes uh, Carnegie saying this. He says, man, this, he was 33 at this time, okay? My age, 33. Man must have an idol, he says. The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol more debasing than the worship of money. To continue much longer overwhelmed by the business cares and and most of my thoughts wholly upon the way to make more money in the shortest time must degrade me beyond hope of permanent recovery. I will resign my business at 35, but during the ensuing years I wish to spend afternoons in securing instruction learning and by reading systematically. See, here, here's the thing about Andrew Carnegie, and if you know anything, you know he didn't stop at 35. He kept going. Why? Because he had an idol. He told us he did. And it consumed his life. I don't know all the details about his life, but I do know that, um, I do know that, that, that the, the laborers that worked under him had unbearable working conditions. In fact, I was reading... And one guy said the working conditions were so bad that it would have justified suicide after six months. That's how bad the conditions were working under him because somebody was getting rich and it wasn't the folks that worked for him. Now, I'm not, this isn't a business course, but what I do want, to, what, want us to see is that Andrew Carnegie knew that money was an idol in his heart, but he didn't know how to root it out. He, he knew that it was there. He was enlightened enough to know that there was a problem, but he didn't have the power to dethrone it and replace it with something better, and it ate his lunch. It ate his life away. And toward the end of his life, you see him giving away lots and lots of money, but you can't get the time back and the lives back that suffered for that idolatry. And my question for us as we keep moving on in the sermon is this. Is this us today? Do you see the the trail of crumbs? Do you see the smoke signals of your behaviors in your life that point back to your idols, and do you feel powerless to overcome them? Are you aware of them? If you're not aware of them, a first step might be to ask God, what is it that I worship more than you? What consumes my imagination? What consumes my thoughts? What consumes my time? We can, we can look at diagnostics such as our bank account, uh, such as our, our calendar, our text messages, all of the traces of information that come from our life to identify our idols because we will serve what we love. We always will serve what we love. And you'll see it. And when you see it, 
The good news of the gospel is this, is that you don't have to be afraid anymore. Because there's one that has power, even over the wickedness of our sinful hearts. What's the antidote? The Holy Spirit must dethrone the idols of our hearts by shining the light of the gospel on the darkened crevices of the things that we make God. Let's continue digging into this. Let's look at dethroning our idols now. And and here's what I've described this as. It's when darkened hearts are reawakened by the light. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Romans 1 and 2 Corinthians uh, 4 here. So so as we begin to see what it is that we worship, um, we can can turn those desires over to God and let Him shine the light in. To dethrone the idol. Because God's jealous, He doesn't share His throne with anything or anyone else. And that's in our best interest. Because, because here's, what happens, here's what happens when Jesus isn't on the throne of our lives. We ultimately find ourselves deceived and enslaved because we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We've exchanged something that promises life to us for something that has no heartbeat. And we do it over and over and over again. And Paul describes it in Romans chapter 1. Here's what he says. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, the idolaters. And their foolish hearts, key word here, were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they actually became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God that does not die for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so here's what God did. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served creature rather than Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. What he describes is what happens when something or someone or a relationship, whatever the idol is, a desire, too big for you to fulfill, and that when we chase after that to fulfill our ultimate sense of satisfaction. In other words, an idol is something that we would say, life isn't worth living unless I have that. Now, it's going to be different for all of us. For some of us, it, it, it could be a job or promotion or financial status. For others of us, it might be more relational. For someone in my family, it's just to be reconciled with their, with their father. That's the whole thing. Like Life isn't really worth living unless they can get that. For others of you, it might be a relational status. It, it, it might be marriage. It, it could be anything. And as we look and we, and, we, and we think and we pray and we ask God to show us these things, we see that there are ways that our hearts get darkened from believing the Gospel. The ultimate sense of satisfaction that if only God is on the throne, we can still be satisfied. That, that, that He can do that. Now, there, there's a temptation for us here to when we, when we start looking inwardly and asking the Holy Spirit to search us and know us, there's a temptation to start Uh, bringing out a measuring stick and saying, okay, well, here's my sin and here's their sin. And to get on this train of comparison. And and, and David really helps us in Psalm 51 when he says, listen, here's how to view sin. And he he was just caught red-handed, right? I mean, he had had, uh, 
He had murdered a man uh, because he had gotten his wife pregnant. I mean, it was a mess. But he approached God by saying this. He didn't focus on the murder. He didn't focus on the adultery or all of the things that happened because of his sin. But he focused on God. Because God's the one that's on the throne. And should be on the throne of our hearts. And he says this. He says, against you and you only have I sinned. And so, church, as we delve into this and we ask God to show us the places that our hearts are darkened, may that be our approach. Because, because there's a trap that the enemy wants to lead us into where, where we focus on specific sins to the, to the extent of we forget that we, we've actually sinned against God and that's what's most important. That there's, there's a peripheral and, and a consequential sin that affects others, but our first sin is against God and God alone. And that's the, that's the enlightenment that the gospel brings to our hearts is to show us those places in our lives. Because dethroning idolatry in our own hearts is about repentance. Not, nothing, it's, it's, it, it, can be, it can be so dangerous, guys, to, to get to the place where we identify what's going on in our hearts and God shows us, but we don't do anything with it, right? It can be so dangerous for us. And so our, our hope is this, is that God knows that we've exchanged the truth about Him for lies, and He hasn't left us. He finds us like He found Moses in Midian. You know, like He found Paul on the way to Damascus to murder Christians. Like, like He found Peter fishing uh, with His uh, fellow fishermen friends and disciples. He finds us when we run for Him. When we run from Him. And so, it doesn't matter how, you ex- have, how you've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. When we identify it, we give God room to work in our hearts and our lives through repentance. Because here's what Jesus came to do. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Our hearts are darkened, as we've said, because we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. This is all of us on the face of the planet. He says that this, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers. So the enemy has blinded us through sin. He's caused us to take the bait that we can deliver ourselves. And what this has done is it's kept them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants, Corinthians, for Jesus' sake. And here's, here's how. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, He's taken that power of creation and He's spoken it into our hearts. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. In other words, we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and God has met us. He's chased us down, and He's shined light into our hearts. And so, if you're in here today, and you are remotely interested in Jesus Christ as your Savior, to reconcile your desires to be fulfilled and satisfied in life, and to also please God, Jesus Christ is the answer. And if you're remotely interested in Him, it's because God has already begun a work inside of you. He's already done it. And the only way that we reconcile the demands of the law, which are to be perfect and to have no other gods before us, and the unconditional love of God is through the cross of Jesus. That He Himself bore on His body the sins of the world so that by faith we can live. When He rose from the grave, He invites us to leave our sins in the grave, our idolatry in the grave. He gives us power to do that time and time and time again. He invites us every single week, 
every single day, every single moment to do this. Jesus alone gives us power to dethrone the idols of our hearts. Amen? Lastly, we can't, we can't, it's not enough to just identify the idols of our hearts. It's not enough to just dethrone, or in other words, to know how we can change. But God invites us to actually change. He invites us to participate in this work of our lives being changed through being sanctified. So sanctification, what is it? It's this big theological word, and here's what it means. Sure, God began the work. He justified us. He met us in Jesus Christ. But He invites us to participate and cooperate with the Holy Spirit as we walk out our salvation. This is why Paul says, he, he says you've got to work out your faith with fear and with trembling. So what is, what is replacing idolatry? It's trusting, church, that Jesus is better than the lies that we've believed. And here, here's, what, here's, the, here's the danger that, that, that uh, Luke shares with us, that Jesus shared, he writes about it in Luke 11. The danger of not replacing our idolatry with Jesus is that our idolatry will get worse. So if you just identify it, you just say, oh yeah, that's where I struggle. You know, you, do, you go through... The, this relentless self-discovery process, lots of personality tests, whether you're, you know, right path or, or you've, you know, you're an ENTJ or, you know, you're an eight on the Enneagram or, or whatever it would be. Like, all that's great and all that's helpful, but if not for the Gospel, you are in misery. Because you have no power to change. You have all of the knowledge of what's wrong with you and what's right with you, but you've got no power to change. Here's what he says in Luke chapter 11. Now, this is talking about uh, Jesus casting out demons and how their life should change, but it's not too different from dethroning idols. Because those idols are demons in and of themselves of our own hearts. And we need to be cleaned. We need to be cleansed. That's what Jesus came to do through faith. Here's what Jesus says. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeing, uh, seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I'll return to the house from which I came. I'll go back to the person that I could find my home in, in other words. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. They know, they've identified the idolatry. They know exactly what's going on in their lives. And then it goes and it brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter in and dwell there, and the last state of the person is worse than the first. That's the danger of knowing your idols and not trusting Jesus. I don't think any of us want that, right? So the key is repentance. It's actually by the power of God, putting to death the things that cause us death and seeking the things that give us life in Christ. Colossians 3, verses 1-10 through 10 tells us how to do this. I'm going to read it for you. I want you to listen for the verbs in here. Listen for where the power comes from for true change in our life. For true change to abandon our idolatry and to put on our new life in Christ. Here's what he says. If then you've been raised with Christ, Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, idols. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. In other words, you don't need to bring yourself to, to, to life anymore through these other things. Jesus has already done it. When Christ who is your life appears at His second coming, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Listen to the action here. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, 
impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. He's listing the Ten Commandments off, right? He's listing them all off. Which is idolatry. On account of these things, here's what happens when we live in these and we trust these to be our God. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. It is coming. In these two, you once walked when you were living in them. You were seeking your life in these ways. But now, listen to this pastoral tone. You must put them all away. You must put them all away. You must see that they can't give you what they promised to give you. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouths. Do not lie to one another. The ninth commandment. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. And what's that new self doing? It's being renewed in the knowledge, in knowledge after the image of its creator. We have power. You, you, don't, you might not believe this today. You, you may feel powerless or you may be unaware of what the enemy is trying to do in your heart. Or you may be in a place where you honestly say, like, all of this is new to me. And, and you realize, man, I've been blinded by sin. I don't even see it. And God's he's, he's taking off the blindfold as I'm talking right now. You need to know this, that in Jesus Christ, you are not powerless. You have power over the enemy. He no longer has a threshold on our lives because Jesus Christ took the sin that He used to keep us in bondage and He nailed it on the cross. I don't care what it is. We could, we could, I don't think Paul was trying to be exhaustive in Colossians 3. He could have kept going with it. He could have read your mail. He could have wrote it in there for you. It doesn't matter what it is. You have power in the Gospel. Because, why? Because you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Meaning, you no longer have to play this giant spiritual game of whack-a-mole trying to make yourself better than you are. You know what I'm talking about? I'm going to put down lust this week, and oh, all of a sudden, you know, drunkenness shows up this week. We don't have to live that way anymore because our aim is not to clean up ourselves. Our aim is to trust Christ and let Him work in and through our lives. And He gives us power to do that through the Holy Spirit. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, Romans 8 tells us, gives life to us. It raises us. It resurrects us. And so when we trust in Christ, what we trust is the resurrecting power of the Gospel will give us power to do two things. To put to death the old ways of living. To cut them out of our lives. And to be filled with the new way of living in Christ. And he talks about it as a process. He says this, listen, you are being renewed. So yeah, you're clean. I've forgiven you. But don't be surprised when that stuff keeps showing back up. That idolatry that you thought you dealt with, you whacked it down. It keeps showing back up in your life. Those desires, and you, you know better now. That's an invitation for us to quickly run back to the cross to a loving Father who chases us, covers us with lavish love and righteousness, and to trust in Him all over again. And, and what you see is that this is the commandment that all the other commandments hinge on. You break one of the other ones, you've broken this one, right? You've looked for deliverance somewhere else. And what I'm telling you today, church, is the most 
true thing about you if you're in Christ Jesus. So when you go home this afternoon and the enemy starts accusing and spouting lies off as you kind of start thinking about what you're dealing with personally, the most true thing about you is not that you're addicted to XYZ or that your God is money, you know, that your idol is comfort. That's not the most true thing about you anymore. If you're in Christ, the most true thing about you is that you have abundant life in Jesus Christ and you have power to put to death the things that, that are lifeless in your life. It may take longer than you want, but the reality will be like this for the rest of your life, that, that you're not as bad as you once were, even though you're not as good as you want to be, right? That's sanctification. That's what God wants to do in us. Let's pray together. Father, we, we come to You and we just lay ourselves bare before Your throne of grace that covers us, that meets us, that changes us. God, we want to be changed by You. We don't want to live with darkened hearts anymore, chasing lifeless pursuits. We want to be known by You. We want to make You known in the world. God, when You set us free to that level, there's nothing, nothing that can keep us in the grave any longer. And so God, would You, would you challenge us today would you challenge us in a way that leads us to genuine repentance, not just self-discovery? God, would you take us deeper than you have before? And when we see the things that we're so afraid to see, would you show us one beautiful truth? That Jesus Christ is better. Jesus is better. And we pray this all in His name. Amen.